Well, if you didn't notice, it's Lent. One of the reasons we change the liturgy and go to one of the older liturgies uh, during Lent is in order to um, help underscore the fact that we are entering into a, serv- a, a time of reverence and examination particularly. And this morning's readings ask us to talk about two things which we don't usually couple together. Victory and suffering. Victory and suffering. We don't usually group those, and not many would say that suffering is part of victory. Though when we think about it, we probably have to admit that suffering is often necessary for victory. Though we usually don't use that word. We usually use other words. We say that things like no pain, no gain, or she fought hard to the end. And it's not a popular thing to talk about. No one wants to hear about suffering, including me, let alone actually suffer. I certainly don't. But suffering is an important thing to think and talk about in life. In my several years as a priest, I've noticed one thing that's been common to all the congregations I've been at, and that's that too often the church has ignored the reality of suffering and Christians ignore it. And that's really unhelpful because suffering assuredly does come in life. And Christians who don't talk about or think about it end up ill-equipped. They have no framework for suffering. Some embrace a stoic hardness. Perhaps you've experienced that or even um, done it yourself. Right? They just kind of plow through. Others collapse into despair under its weight. And oftentimes, it ends up being a combination of the two. People will be stoic for a while, but then they just can't take it anymore, and it falls in on them. Many question their faith in suffering, or worse, God's goodness. Yet Jesus tells us that we will have suffering in this life. John 16.33, particularly, Jesus addresses the subject when he says, In the world you will have trouble and suffering, but take courage, I have conquered the world. And so this morning I want to look at two different things. Number one, I want to look at how Jesus' suffering wins us the victory. How Jesus' suffering wins us the victory. And number two, I want to look at how being victors in Christ requires suffering. How being victors in Christ requires suffering. Let's start with the causes of suffering. The causes of suffering, of course, are many, right? That gets a lot of press. In John, Jesus seems to specifically talk about persecution and suffering in in verse, uh, in that passage I quoted to you, John 16, 33, Jesus talks about suffering and he uses a Greek word which literally means to press in, to press in, external forces coming down on you. Um, But I think it applies to the rest of suffering as well. Sometimes suffering comes from the fallenness of our world, getting back to the causes, right? Sometimes suffering comes from disease, from living in a fallen world. 
Sometimes it comes from someone else's or our own sin. Wars, for example, or lack of resources and and famines and things that come along that nature. Sometimes it's the lasting consequences of our own sin. Right? God is faithful always to forgive our sin, and yet sometimes we're left with the results of suffering just because of the consequences. Sometimes it's even God himself who causes us to suffer, disciplining disciplining us for our own good. As Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives. So as human beings, we always want to know the why of suffering, the cause of suffering, But I suggest to you that there's a more important question to go to, and that's not why or how, because honestly, um, usually we can't answer that question, at least not sufficiently. But rather, the question ought to be, how do we suffer? How do we suffer? How do we endure? How do we endure? In our epistle passage, St. Peter tells us in 3.18 of his letter, that Jesus suffered once for the sins of the righteous. I'm sorry. That Jesus suffered once for sins, dash, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. And so it's interesting that here in the Greek, Peter uses a word to talk about suffering, which is pasco, pasco. To suffer and to endure is how that word is translated. It's both together, to suffer and to endure. All of Jesus' suffering, and he's the only one we can say this about in history, was voluntary. All of Jesus' suffering was voluntary. Think about that. Before going to the cross, Jesus endured and suffered in the desert, as in today's gospel passage that the church has us read on the first Sunday of Lent very intentionally. Jesus chooses to suffer. Lutheran theologian and scholar Joseph Sittler writes this. He says, It is an ancient requirement of the church to enter the 40 days of Lent through the dark wilderness where Jesus confronted the devil. Here are two absolute wills. Here, rather, two absolute wills met. The church knows exactly what it's doing when it takes us this way, into and through the wilderness. It is both a report and a reenactment. For the old story from God is my story. So he says. And so our readings today take us into the wilderness through this path of suffering into Lent. The path of our story is the model of a perfect man, Jesus Christ, suffering for us voluntarily and resisting temptation and putting his will in the will of the fathers entirely out of love. The gospel passage gives us a picture of Jesus' ministry directly after baptism. And so you can see what's going on here. We heard last week the transfiguration passage where God testifies to Jesus being his son. And once again, we see Jesus' baptism. But this time, as God testifies 
to be his, uh, Jesus to be his beloved son with whom he's well pleased, Jesus is then driven, St. Mark says, by the Spirit out into the wilderness for the beginning of his ministry. Jesus is driven out into the wilderness, we read in verse 12. And for 40 days, Jesus suffers and endures by choice in isolation from other humans, completely cut off from companionship with other human beings. All he has, St. Mark tells us, are wild animals, angels, and Satan. Now, Mark doesn't go into detail like Matthew and Luke goes into detail about the interaction. He just tells us there in verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. But the Holy Spirit here is key because the Holy Spirit is with Jesus and takes Jesus along this path into the wilderness, into a place that is very dark. And that's intentional. You see, what is not said here in Mark's Gospel is something that would have been understood in the original culture of who were people that were reading this passage. And that is that the wilderness, we were talking downstairs in Bible study about how the sea is a chaotic place, but the wilderness in this mindset is a place of disorder and it's specifically the place of the devil. It's the place of the devil. You didn't go on retreat into the wilderness as you and I think about that, right? We think, oh, we'll go up on retreat and take a nice walk in the woods and that'll be calming. No, to people in the ancient world, this was to be outside of civilization. This was to be outside of protection and care. You might run into robbers. You might run into thieves. You might run into wild animals. You could run into any number of things. And so Jesus here is taken by the Holy Spirit into that wild, into that wilderness to do battle with the devil. Jesus chooses that suffering and that battle and that endurance, as St. Peter says, for us, the righteous, suffering for the unrighteous. But the second point here in these readings is that Jesus doesn't do it alone, and neither do we. In fact, we ought not and get into danger if we head into the wilderness and into suffering and into persecution without God. Who's with Jesus in addition to the wild animals and the angels and Satan? Who's with Jesus? The Holy Spirit, yeah. The third person of the Trinity is with Jesus in this, right? And so Jesus isn't doing this alone, and the Holy Spirit points also to covenant, points us back to the Old Testament lesson where we see Noah and his family in Genesis 9, beginning with verse 8. Did you take a look at that passage? If you, if you haven't had a chance to, look at it now with me in the scripture insert. And just count up, take a moment, count up how many times the word covenant is used. I see six. Anybody coming up with any more? 
I see six. You see seven? All right, well, we'll go with seven. That's the, the, the godly number. Absolutely. But the point is that look at what's going on in this Old Testament passage. Look at what God is doing with his people. Not just with Noah and his offspring, but with all of creation. What's God saying? What's God saying? What's this specific covenant? First of all, let's back up. What is, where does this occur in the story of Noah? This is before or after the flood. I'll brush off the, your Sunday school, uh, the dust from Sunday school, right? We don't talk about Genesis enough. Yeah, it's after the flood. Absolutely, it's after the flood. So if we go back to chapter 7, for 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind, save for the eight people and animals saved on the ark. Do you think that it was pleasant for those eight people on the ark to be cooped up with animals for 40 days and 40 nights? Probably not, right? Do you think it was pleasant for them to watch all of mankind drowned outside the ark? Probably not. You see, there's suffering here, too, in the Old Testament reading. But do you think that it was worth it? Do you think it was worth it to them to go through that suffering? For the sake of life? Yeah, absolutely it was worth it. It was worth it to be able to survive, right? To escape death, of course. And in today's reading, God reminds them that they are his people and that he's with them through a covenant, a solemn vow. Look at that Genesis passage, chapter 9, specifically verses 11 through 13, where the Lord says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. What's the Lord saying here? He's making this his solemn vow and he's giving them the sign of a rainbow in the sky. That's a sign whenever we see that God has promised to never wipe out all of creation again by water. And in fact, this water gets taken and transformed through Christ into something that saves us. The covenant of Noah was great. But the new covenant that St. Peter talks about is the best. The covenant of holy baptism. The first thing we see with St. Peter 
in this passage, after he talks about Jesus suffering once for our sins, is to point backwards. Look at the epistle reading, chapter 1. We'll start with verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stop there for a moment. So the first thing that St. Peter speaks of here is Jesus preaching to those who didn't believe at the time of Noah. Now, there's a lot that can be said about that and has been, but we're going to skip over that for the time being because that's multiple sermons in itself and continue on. But we see St. Peter drawing a direct connection here between suffering, covenant, and baptism. Do you see that? The apostles drawing this connection between Jesus' suffering, covenant, and baptism. Going through Noah. That is that Christ's suffering once for sins is what brings us to God. It's what brings us to God, St. Peter says. Look again at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt but as an appeal for God, for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism corresponds for us to Noah and his family being saved through covenant from the waters of the flood. It saves us as an appeal to God for a good conscience through Jesus' resurrection. There's a lot going on in this passage, but let's stay focused on that and on the suffering part. Do you know that the early church talked about baptism as being the ark that saves us from peril? In fact, the whole reason that our church roofs are constructed the way they are from the earliest of days is to reflect the bottom of a boat. If you turn that over, you have the bones and hull of a ship. And so it's to give us this image of the church being the ark that the Lord puts us into through baptism to travel through the troublesome waters of this world, to travel through the sufferings that come. There's so much going on in this passage, but when we pray in the great litany, as Father Joshua will lead us in praying today, when we pray by the mystery of your holy incarnation, by your agony, by your death, what are we doing? Why are we praying by those things? By those things in Christ. We're praying those things because of what St. Peter says right here. Because in Baptist, we can appeal to God through Jesus' suffering. That his suffering, his righteous suffering for un our unrighteousness, our sin is brought to us 
by right through baptism. Do you see that? Do you see the connection here? Do you see how powerful this is? That we're appealing to God through our covenant with Jesus because of his suffering. As we appeal to God, we have to remember that to appeal to him is to assume that he's there, right? Despite our suffering. And that's a whole lot of theology we've gone through so far, but let's try to apply this to our lives at this point. As we embark on this 40-plus day journey of Lent, or outside of this journey, whenever suffering is imposed upon you and you enter into the wilderness, I want you to remember these things, these three things. Number one, do not question your status as God's son or daughter. Do not question your status as God's son or daughter as you suffer. If you've been baptized, your status is solid and clear. You are his, and he is yours. Don't let anyone, human or devil, question that. The one true God who is mighty to save, as we pray in the collect, holds you as his son or daughter in covenant. That's his promise to you through Jesus' suffering death and resurrection, and has won you the ultimate victory. St. Paul writes to the Roman church in chapter 8, verse 38, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So number one, don't question your status. Number two, suffering and endurance are part of the Christian life. Suffering and endurance are part of the Christian life. Jesus himself promises us that, that we will have suffering. But take courage, he says, for I have overcome the world. Don't fall for the false teachers or preachers or even just weaker, ignorant Christians who tell you that suffering is due to your lack of faith. If that were so, then we must say that Jesus was faithless and a liar. And of course, that's not true. We know that. Before the perfect man voluntarily suffered, the perfect man voluntarily endured hardship and things. And if they did that to him, they'll do it to us. Jesus himself tells us that we will have suffering. Number three, As Jesus chose to suffer and die, so must we. As Jesus chose to suffer and die, so must we. Remember that when we suffer. Jesus shows us the way to eternal life is through the cross, through his literal death and passion. For him, it was an actual death. It was an actual cross. For you and I, assuming we're not called to be martyrs, it's a metaphorical one. We have a metaphorical cross to bear. He asks us to pick up our cross and follow him. So friends, what is your cross? What is your cross? And how does it relate to your suffering? There's many false preachers again today that will tell you and preach that being a Christian is all about self-actualization. It's all about self-validation, making you feel good about yourself. They eliminate any kind of endurance 
or suffering because they say a loving God wouldn't require that of us. No, the loving God does require that of us. Again, as St. Paul writes to the Roman church, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, that is Jesus, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So do you see, sometimes suffering is that crucifixion of the flesh, that crucifixion of the old self, of the old nature, so that it can be put to death, so that we can live. What if, friends, we as the church were not surprised by suffering and endurance? What if the church would come up with a season that would train us for such a time? If only the church would put together a time of the year where we could focus on this and maybe impose a little bit of suffering on ourselves so that we know how to do it. Aha, hopefully you're seeing where this is headed. The church in her wisdom has done that. She's given us the season of Lent. She's given us the season of Lent as we enter into this wilderness, perhaps the wilderness of our hearts, perhaps the wilderness of our physical or emotional or spiritual pain. But we don't enter into that wilderness alone. We enter into that wilderness with the guidance of the Holy Spirit and knowing that Jesus has won the victory already. If you've never considered it that way, I invite you to consider this Lent as a time of training, a time of self-imposed and grace-filled suffering as we pray, as we fast, as we give of ourselves with our alms together, along with the historic church during this time, abstaining from things like meats and luxuries during certain times, these things ought to cause us some suffering. That's the point. Just like Jesus in Lent, we're driven by the Holy Spirit into this so that our will might be in alignment with the Father's. Of course, he didn't need it, but we do. The church gives us this fixed time to endure for the sake of life and eternality, temporary suffering, a voluntary time to come to him, to be honest with him, with our pain, to be honest with him, with our need and our lack to examine ourselves, to confess to him, so that we're able to better serve him and endure. And in doing that, we'll be able to better serve and endure, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of others in the church. If we know how to deal with suffering ourselves, we can help others who might be suffering and struggling for the sake of eternal comfort. So I want to leave you with the words once again of St. Paul, but this time to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort of with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly 
and comfort too. I invite you to a holy Lent. And if you're already suffering, let the Holy Spirit guide you through it, sanctify it, and join it to the suffering of Christ our Lord, the righteous one who suffered for we, the unrighteous. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.